Now this morning we're going to be looking at a passage that is found in Philippians. But before we do, I want to briefly give you a little bit of background surrounding this joyful letter. Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. The external evidence for this is so overwhelming that I'm not going to waste any more time trying to explain anything differently. Everybody would agree that Paul definitely is the author. Now, since Paul wrote the letter, it might be helpful to figure out where he was when he wrote this letter. I mean, was he just in, was he in Rome maybe, you know, working at one of those uh, Roman pool spa things and working on his band of soleil tan? Was he, uh, was he, you know, on death row waiting to be executed? Was he at home, possibly remodeling his kitchen or doing something like that? What was, where was he when he decided to write this letter? Because information like this can be helpful in that it can give us some insight into the circumstances that surrounded the writer, as well as some of the factors that may have influenced his writings. So in all likelihood, we can say that Rome is indeed the place of writing. And if Rome is the place of writing then we can know that Paul was in prison and that the imprisonment was serious because in Philippians 1.20, we realize that the issue of life or death had not been decided yet. As to the theme of Philippians, no one would argue that divine joy just oozes off of every page. The Greek word for joy in, in both its noun and verb form appears about 12 times in its four brief chapters. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this to say about the letter. It is the most lyrical, the happiest letter which the apostle ever wrote, at least among those which have been preserved. There is in it a note of happiness and joy. Not that joy is absent from Paul's other letters, but it is particularly striking here. End quote. I don't know about you, but I find it rather convicting that the Apostle Paul could have this much joy in light of his circumstances. I mean, let me remind you that this is the same Paul who, prior to this imprisonment, was forced to be lowered through an opening in the city wall of Damascus in a basket because some of the townspeople wanted to kill him. The same Paul who was stoned and dragged out of the city of Lystra, left for dead, the same Paul who was beaten and thrown into a prison cell in Philippi. The same Paul who was forced to flee Thessalonica and Berea. The same Paul who was savagely beaten in Jerusalem. The same Paul who was shipwrecked on the island of Malta and while he was there bitten by a viper. All the while on his way to Rome in which he would spend years awaiting a verdict. And yet, despite all of those things, despite everything that Paul had gone through, this letter is full of joy. At the writing of this letter, Paul's in prison. And you know what? He's happy. This sounds to me like a man who has, has learned what it means to be content in whatever circumstances he finds himself in. So now that we have a little bit of the background that surrounds this treasured epistle, I'd like to spend the rest of our time together exploring some of the great truths of Christian growth. Open with me, if you would, to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. 
And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we look at this prayer, I want you to take note of three essential elements that bring about Christian growth. As we look at each element in detail, I want you to ask God to search your heart to see if there might be any one of these elements lacking in your life in any way and thus hindering the joy that comes from true Christian growth. I really like the fact that God's Word uses uh, parts of God's creation to help us to understand a point. I mean, in the Scriptures, we see the mustard seed. We see the, the fig tree. We see the fruit trees. We see the vine, just to name a few of the things that are part of God's creation. All of these are part of what God has made. They're things we have seen, things we have touched, things we know. And because of that, we're able to relate to spiritual truths far more easily than when we throw around words like justification, propitiation, regeneration, or Brock's coolation. <laughs> I just kind of made that last one up. But those are all words, those are all words that we have a hard time understanding. Think of it this way, though. We all know that when you plant a seed, the seed starts off looking nothing like it will someday grow into. Take the mighty oak, for example. It starts off as a little acorn, but over time it becomes a great oak. As you and I grow in the Lord, we, over time, become more and more conformed into the image of Christ this is known as the sanctification process, but I'm sure most of us could probably better relate and better understand it as the oak tree illustration. It is that process that I want, to, I want us to keep in mind as we look at Christian growth. The three necessary elements needed for, Christian, for the Christian to grow are love, character, and power. The growth process starts with love. For it is love that is at the very core of the Christian faith. The growth process sprouts up with character. For it is character that bears evidence that growth is taking place. And the growth process comes to full bloom with power. For it is the power of Christ that brings about fruit and the Christian's righteousness. As we look at the first essential element for Christian growth, we see that love is at the top of Paul's list. It says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. An abounding love was absolutely essential if these beloved believers were to experience true growth. This love was not to be blind or, or ignorant, but rather it was to be a love that was supported with real knowledge and all discernment. It was to be a complete love. One that flowed out of both the heart and the mind. And it is here that we see the delicate balance that is to be struck by every believer. 
For Paul did not merely pray that the love of the Philippians would abound still more and more, nor does he pray that the Philippians would grow merely in their knowledge and discernment. To overemphasize either area is to misunderstand the perfect love that is portrayed in our passage. The word for love that Paul uses here is agape. And according to Harper's Dictionary, it is used in the New Testament to designate the, to designate the unmerited love that God shows to humankind in the sending of His Son as the suffering Redeemer. When used of human love, it means selfless and self-giving love. This agape love is at the very core, the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, of Christianity. 1 John 4, 7 through 11 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but He he loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As I have stated earlier, this love that Paul prays for is not some kind of blind or ignorant love, but rather it is a love that sees the heart and the mind united. If love is a flower that grows and blooms, then knowledge and discernment are the soil in which it springs forth from. For it is these two elements that bring about real love. J. Dwight Pentecost, in his commentary on Philippians, had this to say about the love-knowledge combination that Paul is praying for. It is an intelligent love, not an indiscriminate love. One gives himself to the Word, and through the Word he comes to a knowledge of what God expects of the one who loves him. He brings his life into conformity to the love of God revealed in the Word. He loves what God loves and hates what God hates. That is love according to knowledge, end quote. The other word we find Paul using in our passage is translated discernment. This is the only place that we find this particular word being used in all of the New Testament. It refers to a perception and an insight that flows out of one's intellect. It is the result of putting one's knowledge into practice. Let's say that... Well, let me see if I can make this a little bit clearer for us. Let's say that I know that God's Word tells me that I am to sacrificially love my wife. I know that it's found in Ephesians 5.25. I can cite you other verses that... Uh, support it and let me know that I am to love and honor my wife, Colossians 3.19, 1 Peter 3.7. I know that information. I have it locked in here. But let's just say that I fail to put that knowledge into action. Let's just say that I don't sacrificially love my wife. Let's just say that I don't live with her in an understanding way or give her the honor that she is due. Even though I have the knowledge of what I'm to do, if I fail to put that knowledge into practice, then I am lacking the word that is translated discernment in our passage. 
My knowledge is doing nothing to affect my moral decisions or my behavior. When Paul prayed, he didn't want the Philippians to have a love that was based solely on their mental grasp of God's great truths, but rather he wanted them to have a love that put their knowledge of his truths into action. And that knowledge was to be put into action in such a way that it could cause the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner that was worthy of the gospel of Christ, as we see in Philippians 1.27. There is indeed a great difference between knowing something and being able to apply it. The fact that any of you possesses a great knowledge of the Bible does not mean that you possess this word that is translated discernment. The two are very different, and yet both must exist if our love is to abound still more and more. Again, I must remind you of the great balance that is called for in the Christian life. Paul knew that a knowledge that was not based on love was absolutely useless. He also knew that a love that could not be controlled and checked by knowledge and discernment was equally useless. Paul wanted his friends at Philippi to experience the joy that comes from true growth. And he knew that their ultimate joy rested in love, an abounding love that was rooted in knowledge and discernment. This brings us to the second essential element for Christian growth. What else was necessary if these believers were to truly grow? What else would they need to experience the joy that was ever present in the one who introduced them to the gospel? Follow along with me, if you would, in verse 10 of our text. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. It is here that we uncover Paul's three-pronged approach to character development. Paul knew that if these Philippians were to truly grow, they would need to grow in character. And this growth in character would bear evidence to the world that they were followers of Jesus Christ. So he prayed that the Philippians' character would grow in such a way that they would be able to approve the things that are excellent, that they would be sincere and they would be blameless. The, verse, the first prong of this character development has to do with approving the things that are excellent. Paul is not talking about their ability to simply distinguish right from wrong. There's a much finer detail here, and that has to do with choosing to do that which is best or most vital. In our society, we do not lack for the opportunity to choose. The freedom of choice is the driving force behind democracy. It's the reason our country was founded, and it's the fuel that fires the economy to this day. As Americans, you and I have come to expect it. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we must make sure that we never do anything to neglect it. To every one of you alike, God has granted you 24 hours in a day. There is not a moment more. There is not a moment less. What you accomplish in that 24-hour period, however, 
is largely determined by the discipline that you exercise in the use of that time. Some of you will accomplish much. Some of you will accomplish little. Some of you will excel. And some of you will approve those things that are of lesser worth. I want to make a note here, though, because the things of lesser worth are not necessarily bad. They may, in fact, be good. But they are not the best, nor are they the most vital. Let's look at it this way. Many of us have a list of things that we we need to do around the house. For those of us that are married, we refer to that little list as our our little honeydew list and uh, all those little things that uh, our honey wants us to do. And let's just say that on this list, we have four different things that uh, we are to accomplish and, and do. Let's just say that we have something on there to where we need to patch a small hole in the wall. Another thing on there is replacing a burnt-out light bulb in the hallway closet. Another thing might be replacing a broken water heater. And the last thing may be installing a shelf in the pantry. All four of these things are jobs that need to get done. And as the controller of that list, you have the, you have the choice to decide what it is you're going to do. But as we look at this list and as we put it under a little bit of scrutiny, I think that we might find that there is something on this list that deserves special attention. It is an item that if it is neglected, it may send waves of disharmony throughout the entire household. And as long as you don't go to the store that Jack went to, you should be able to replace that water heater and keep the wife of your youth fully satisfied. In our illustration, the water heater, the broken water heater, was indeed the best choice. The others were good, but they lacked the importance of the water heater. So many times we are prone to give our time to to those things that are not excellent. We We forget what is vital, and we give ourselves to second- and third-rate issues. Paul wanted to ensure that the Philippians didn't fall prey to this tendency. He wanted them to give their strength and effort to that which was best, not just good. And he knew that if they had abounding love, it would help them to not only do what was good, but would it help them to do what was best? Now, some of you may be asking, what is it that which is best? Well, I can think of nothing greater than what Paul describes a little bit later in in this letter in Philippians 3, 10 and 11. It says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. To approve those things that are excellent requires an understanding on your part that you do not have time to do both the good and the best. Many of us consume ourselves with activities and projects so much so that we forget to pursue that which is best. We are all so busy 
cleaning the house and cooking like Martha, that we forget to sit at the feet of our Lord like Mary. And yet this is the one thing that Jesus tells us is necessary. Approving that which is superior requires a mind that is as Christ. And it is in the Bible that we see the mind of Christ revealed. You and I will never be the men and women that God calls us to be apart from a devoted time of study and meditation on His Word. Let me repeat that because that is a key point. You and I will never be the men and women that God calls us to be apart from a devoted time of study and meditation of His Word. The second prong of character development has to do with the Philippians being sincere. This word in the original text means clear when examined in the sunlight. To get an idea of what is meant here, I want you to think about the front window of your car. On a dark, cloudy day, we tend not to notice all of the bug guts and the smudges and the water drops from our sprinklers that cloud up our our windows and make them dirty. But on a bright, sunny day, especially when the sun is rising or setting and you find yourself, you know, just driving straight into it, you notice every little smudge, every little smear. You can't help it. The sun reveals it. The sun makes it perfectly clear. It reveals all of the debris that might have otherwise been unnoticed. But if you just washed your car... This is the beauty of taking your car and getting it washed. If you've just washed your car and you drive into that sun and you're looking through your front window and that window is spotless when the sun's coming through it, the other word would be sincere, that window's sincere, then you know that your wash job was indeed good and that it has passed the sun test. Now, you and I are different from windows, though, but that does not mean that there is no way for us to examine ourselves Our sun test occurs when we hold ourselves up to the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is in the pages of Scripture that we see His life unfold, for it is there that we learn of His immeasurable love, His great compassion, His atoning sacrifice, His matchless glory, His unyielding faithfulness, His mighty power, and His impending judgment. When you and I examine ourselves in the light of Christ's life, we will be able to see every smudge and smear that appears on the windshields of our lives. The test of your life is not what people approve, but rather what the Word of God and the God of the Word approve. When you examine yourself against the revelations of Scripture, you will have an infallible test as to whether or not your conduct is indeed sincere Paul's prayer for the Philippians was that they might be sincere. His hope for them was that they would someday hear our Lord and Savior say to them, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The third and final prong of character development has to do with the Philippians being blameless. This word carries with it an implication of not being a stumbling block or an offense. He wanted their character to be such that anyone following their example would not be led into sin. 
For those of you who are Christians, especially Christian parents, I want, I want you to be aware of the fact that people are watching you. Whether it's your co-workers, your children, your neighbor, your spouse, people are watching you to see if there is any difference whatsoever in your life and in your behavior. If it's a co-worker, they want to know if you're any different than the atheist who works in the cubicle right next to them. If it's your kids, they want to know if you're going to respond to them differently than their non-Christian friends' parents. If it's your neighbor, they want to know if you're any more caring than the Buddhist family that lives down the street. And if it's your spouse, they want to know if you're any more committed than their Mormon friend's spouse. All of these people are watching you. And that is why you must take great pains to be blameless. Paul is encouraging his Philippian friends to really, in a way, be other-centered, not self-centered. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says this. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul wanted the Philippians' conduct to be such that the pattern they set for other people to follow would steer them far and free from any form of sin. Paul's prayer was for a blameless life. Now, it should be noticed that the driving force behind Paul's three-pronged character development was the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to approve the things that were excellent to be sincere and to be blameless until the day of Christ. Paul wanted the Philippians to be ever mindful of this glorious fact. Jesus himself in John 14, 2 through 3 tells us, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. For those of us who have put our hope and faith in Christ, this world is not our home. We have a home in heaven with Jesus. But until He returns, we are to find ourselves here serving Him faithfully. And while we don't know the exact time of His return, we do know of its certainty. Christ will return and we will stand before Him. The only question that remains unanswered is will we stand before Him full of the fruit of righteousness that is mentioned in verse 11 or will we stand before, before Him devoid of any fruit? This brings us to the third essential element for Christian growth. What else was needed in order for these Philippians to experience true growth? They needed power. Just as sap is the lifeblood of a tree, Jesus Christ is the power that brings about genuine growth in the life of a believer. If the Philippians were to stand in the presence of the Lord, full of the fruit of righteousness, they would need the power of Christ manifested in their lives. Verse 11 reads, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness is an Old Testament expression that has to do with the behavior of the righteous person. 
The religious people of Jesus' day placed their focus on the fulfilling of the law. In fact, they even added a little bit to it. And thus they saw righteousness as something that came from their own obedience. Their reasoning was since the law revealed the righteousness and the holiness of God, adherence to it must in some way put them in a right standing with God. But the righteousness that Paul prays for in this passage does not come from the law. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. This fruit that Paul is referring to is the is produced in the life of the believer through Jesus Christ. Paul knows that true Christian growth would not be possible were it not for the person of Jesus Christ. Only by the life of Jesus being manifested in the lives of believers would any of us be able to produce any form of righteousness. You can turn real quickly in your Bibles to Romans 3, 10 through 12. And that says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And in John 15, 4 through 5, it tells us, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you and I have absolutely no chance of standing before the Lord full of the fruit of righteousness. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, we can bear no fruit. He is the life, the energy, the sap. We are nothing more than the tree. He is the lifeblood that is to run through each and every one of us. And that is why religion will never save you. The only thing that can save any of us is a personal, intimate relationship with the risen Lord. Paul knew that, and that's exactly why he prayed this prayer on behalf of the Philippians. The very thing that Paul prayed for is the very thing that we all need, a growing and vital relationship with Jesus Christ. He prayed for love, an abounding love that was rooted in knowledge and discernment, a matter that is so fundamental to the Christian faith that it simply implodes without it. He prayed for character so that their lives would bear evidence to the fact that they were Christians. He prayed for power so that they might be strengthened to live the life of joy that he had found. It's not rocket science, and yet, for many of us, we make it more complex than it needs to be. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, then it will be impossible for you to experience true Christian growth. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then it is fully within your grasp to experience real growth, and true joy. Now, I'm not saying that this is a, something that will happen overnight. It is a process, and for some, it takes time. 
for all of us it takes time. But I am saying that God has given us all that we need to grow as Christians. The question remains, how are you going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Will you be full of the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ? Or will you stand there empty-handed, having tried to trust in your own works? It would be my prayer that we all might stand before our glorious Savior, full of His righteousness for His ultimate glory. Let us close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. And we thank You for the truths that it contains for Your people. And Lord, I do just pray that for today's message, You will just touch our hearts, that You will show us the areas that we are lacking in, the things that would hinder our growth, Father, and, and thus get in the way of our of our joy. Lord, I pray for every one of us that we might indeed be as the Apostle Paul, filled with joy despite our circumstances, that, Lord, we would grow and walk in a way that would bring you much glory. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning, and we do just ask that you would do in the hearts of your people what only you can do, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out and that we might be lights to this dark world. We thank you, Father, and we just commit the rest of our morning and time to you. In Christ's name, amen.